All right, people, we all know the stakes of the 2024 election are high, whether it's keeping the Senate, taking back the House, or stopping Republicans at the state level. If you're ready to make a real difference, sign up for Vote Save America's 2024 volunteer program. And just to make it interesting, we're pitting you against each other. Vote Save America will sort you onto a team east or west, and you'll compete with a community of other volunteers to maximize your impact on the ground with opportunities tailored to you and the causes you care about. The team with the highest volunteering staff could secure the biggest prize of all, the continuation of American democracy. Head to votesaveamerica.com slash 2024 now and get ready to organize or else. This message has been paid for by Vote Save America. You can learn more at votesaveamerica.com. And this ad has not been authorized by any candidate or candidate's committee. Welcome back to Pod Save the World. I'm Tommy Vitor. I'm Ben Rhodes. Ben, uh, so we're recording this before the 4th, so I want to say happy 4th, but then everyone's going to listen to it after the 4th, so that's weird. I don't know. You going to see some fireworks? I mean, hopefully we have another one. Hopefully this isn't the last The last July. anniversary. <laughs> before, before we cease to be, be a democracy. America's last yeah, birthday? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Oh, man, this got dark uh, fast. No, no, no. Uh, yeah, like it's, uh, it's always good. The kids are into fireworks, like, so. Yeah. You know. I mean, I was a big fireworks kid. I was kind of a pyro. You were you really? Yeah, I got in big trouble once for um, writing my name in something flammable in a spray can and then setting Ooh. it on fire in the backyard. And then that's pretty cool. Well, it wasn't the best way to hide it from my mom when it just said Tommy and like burn on the bricks. That would not be my first choice for how to conceal no. my my guilt. She was like, "Who did it?" I'm like, "Taylor, my <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> definitely John, my brother." Uh, we got a great episode today. Here's why we have a great episode. Because a lot of shows do mailbags and they just mail it in. Oh. You guys send us really good, topical, smart questions that make these episodes just like any other episode of like important issues. Like people want to know about Keir Starmer over in uh, over in the UK, the labor leader. They want to know about Brexit. They want to know about the Russification of Eastern Ukraine, refugees, uh, all kinds of great stuff. We have a really great packed show for you um but before we get to some of that stuff ben did you see the breaking news that the prince of wales will no longer accept suitcases of cash i didn't but uh i'm hardened to hear that <laughs> the royal palace said uh apparently this is in the sunday times that the prince of wales will no longer take literal suitcases of cash from the the qatari prime minister uh, he took two. Was, point, that, was that a, a like a habit before? Like, he took two point five million in cash in a suitcase and carrier bags between twenty eleven and twenty fifteen. Now it all apparently went to his charitable fund, and I guess this is just sort of like maybe how some of these Middle Eastern countries make donations. Was but, there Venmo available? Or, I don't know. Uh, yeah, a suitcase full of cash is a little dramatic. It's a little sketchy. Like pallets of cash. Mm. Yeah, literally. There's, a, there's yeah. some history there. Uh, we're also recording this on the day the Supreme Court has uh, attempted to begin the process of uh, gutting uh, the country's ability to regulate greenhouse gases. So the ruling could have been worse, but it was still not great. Not much worse. Uh, I mean, it, like basically to have the Supreme Court be an adversary in your capacity <laughs> to, save, to the world. save the world is uh, and filled with people who could be on the Supreme Court, like when my kids are my age, like the, just totally unfucking sustainable you know, yeah. to have this court I yeah. mean, in this form. And also this. just unprecedented. I mean, I, I was reading, you know, the New York Times had a good breakdown of some of this. Like in Germany, you serve for a 12-year term or until you're 68 and then you're out of there. 
Yeah. They retire you. Yeah. That seems like a good plan. Yeah, the term term limits at a minimum, uh, at a minimum. seems necessary here. I mean, you have a court acting as a legislature, right? <laughs> um, and they also, like, if you think about it, Tommy, Bush v. Gore, mm-hmm. right? What kind of seismic event in my that was a bad one. early days. Um, basically, the, the 5-4 conservative majority inserts George Bush into the presidency. That allows him to appoint Alito and Roberts, mm-hmm. right? Then Obama's denied Merrick Garland. That allows them to shove Kavanaugh on there. Um, and then, uh, oh, I don't know. I don't have to go through this. It's just like- It th- sucks. This is, there's not like a democratic legitimacy behind what they're doing. You know, there's yeah. basically none. I like when people um, clutch their pearls about the legitimacy of the court and possible reforms and what it might do. It's like, you guys yeah. are crazy. No one, yeah. no one respects Expanding the court. the court or putting term limits on would be nothing compared to what they've already done to eviscerate the legitimacy yeah. of this court. Yeah. Uh, if you like- slightly dark, maybe half glass full conversations like this. Let me recommend a great podcast called Positively Dreadful from uh, our host and our friend, Crooked that, Media Editor, that, Brian like that's, Boiler. That's not the kind of name that in the brainstorm meeting, you know, usually it's like, where's the hope and optimism? No, I loved this from Brian because, you know, we know Brian well. He's a guy who is like pretty critical of the Democratic Party sometimes. He can, he pushes hard for more, but he's like trying to bring people on to, to, change his mind, yeah, you know, make him feel better. And so the first episode uh, was with Jamie Raskin, the congressman. The second is with Amy Littlefield, an abortion access correspondent and journalist from The Nation. It's a great show. Uh, it drops on Fridays, so listen wherever you get your podcasts. Also, if you need a little pick-me-up, Ben, Crooked Coffee is now available at crooked.com slash coffee. So Delicious. I bought some. I'm a, dark, I'm a dark roast guy. I'm a dark roast guy, too. You know, I didn't know that. I didn't know what roast I cared about until we did this little coffee figuring it out project. And they sent us like six or eight different samples of beans and I had to brew them all. I was like, oh, yeah, that helped. Yeah. Uh, I mean, I wish I had the the touch. I I generally don't as a brewer. (laughs) I'm not a barista. (laughs) I'm not a priest either. Uh, All right. Want to do some questions? Let's do it. So I wonder what your thoughts on this has been. Christopher John on Twitter says, what opinions, if any, do you have about Keir Starmer and how is Everton going to do this season? Uh, I'll take the Everton piece. Okay. That's it. my uh, adopted EPL team. Thanks to Roger Bennett from Men and Blazers. They almost got relegated uh, down to a lesser league. That's how it works over in the English Premier League. You can be sent down to the minors. Um, let's hope that doesn't happen again. Their first game is going to be against Chelsea, which until recently was owned by a Russian oligarch and now is owned by some of the folks who own the, uh, the Dodgers out here in Los Angeles. So we'll probably get our asses kicked is my point. But um, <laughs> that's all I got. What about Keir Starmer? I don't really have strong feelings about Keir Starmer. Like, I, I, I guess my only anxiety is like Boris Johnson is on the ropes like he's never been before. And I'm not sure labor is pushing the advantage as much as I would like them to, but I'm not sure what angles yeah. they have. Like they're winning some local elections. So my, full disclosure, I've met Keir Starmer a couple of times. And um, I, I first of all, I think that what he's done, he's done kind of what you needed to do, which is Labor Party was in a bit of shambles after both Brexit and the Boris Johnson victory and the fights over, you know, Jeremy Corbyn, whatever you were on mm-hmm. that fight. Yeah. And so, like, job one for him was kind of reconstituting the party, kind of stabilizing things and defining Boris Johnson negatively, uh, which they've done quite well. But to, some, be, honest, some help. to, to be fair, they, you know, like, <laughs> they've had a lot of help uh, parties, in that project. Yeah. I guess what I'd say about Keir Starmer is like he's the kind of guy you could tell that like labor turned him in a way because like he looks like the prime minister, right? Mm-hmm. Like he's kind of central casting kind of guy. 
What's interesting to me about Keir Starmer is if you look at his background, he actually comes from like a working class yeah. family that is the kind of voters that labor has been losing, right? Like, you know, outside of London, working class background. And he seems like the kind of guy, because he became a barrister, you know, he kind of stiffened himself over the years, right? That's like true. He became, you know, you know, it's like a lot of people that climb up the social ladder in a, in a kind of caste system like the UK, you become less like where you came from um, as you ascend through educational and professional ranks. And so to me, the irony of Keir Starmer is to take that next step and win back those voters and beat Boris Johnson and the Tories, he's going to actually have to go all the way back to who he was at the beginning of his life. Like he needs to connect with the kind of voters like his parents, right, who've been disaffected from labor um, while kind of holding together this coalition that can excite younger people who might have been more uh, favorable to Jeremy Corbyn, a little uncomfortable with uh, some of the centrism that infuses Keir Starmer. But like, let's face it, it's the UK, like labor doesn't win that often. And I think, you know, as we've been talking about in this podcast, like having a big tent and a politician who not only looks the part, but again, can get back in touch with his own roots. Um, yeah, th that's the step he needs, the leap he needs to take to become prime minister. Now that, you know, the party's consolidated, it's under control, it's pointed in a certain direction. Boris Johnson's kind of self-immolated. Now you got to close the deal. Yeah, I was reading a, a pretty long, thoughtful profile of, of Starmer, and it mentioned how in t April 2020, he ran on the moral case for socialism. He pledged to raise taxes on the rich, defend the rights of migrants, prevent illegal wars, and implement a Green New Deal. Feels like that's a pretty good agenda <laughs> yeah, yeah, to get yeah. back to. Yeah, that I mean, might land well. Yeah, and he, you know, like he's 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 threaded the needle by talking, you know, about law and order and trying to to duck culture wars when they seem counterproductive, but. Frankly, I, you know, there's something to that as well. I mean, like you got to win elections here. Yeah, I mean, you yeah, got to put this all together. Um, and uh, but you also have to convey that you stand for something, right? And yep. what what are the things that you won't compromise? What are the culture wars, frankly, that you will fight? You know, um, and, and I think you know he's got an opportunity here to do that over the next year or two. Agreed. Uh, let's stick with the UK. So Colleen on Instagram says, "I read that the Brexit agreement regarding Northern Ireland is no longer. Can you explain? Thanks. Uh, let me. Get, I'll give a little backdrop. We can talk about it. So backdrop here is Brexit happens. The UK leaves the European Union." which means Northern Ireland is out of the European Union too. But Northern Ireland and Ireland share a land border, and Ireland is part of the EU. So the EU has a bunch of strict trading rules, especially around food items like milk and eggs. So they have to figure out what do we do about this border. And no one wants to construct a bunch of border checks or, or stuff on the a hard border between Northern Ireland and Ireland because of fear that that could reignite sectarian tensions. So what they do is uh, the UK and the EU sign what's called the Northern Ireland Protocols, it basically says all these customs checks happen at Northern Ireland's ports. Uh, everyone kind of hates it, I'd say. Uh, and now the UK government wants to change the rules so that goods uh, that only go to Northern Ireland don't get checked and go into so-called green lane. And goods that are destined for Ireland or other places in the EU do get checked in this red lane. Uh, the European Commission is pissed. They might take legal action. They did take legal action, I think. Uh, there could be other retaliation. So I think it's sort of like pending, but I think the latest is that Parliament started the process of passing whatever they need to pass to basically tear up this part of their agreement with the EU. Yeah. I mean, the basic point is that like Brexit, as it was promised by Boris Johnson, is unworkable, you know, um, because he, he promised 
people everything um, on different sides of different issues, right? And, and you know, you you can't promise to have a, a real Brexit um, instead of like a very soft Brexit. I mean, to go all the way back, people at the beginning of the Brexit process, um, after the referendum, were contemplating a, a softer Brexit where the, the UK would stay in a lot of the EU's rules. Mm-hmm. But Johnson came on with a hard line faction and said, no, we want a real meaningful Brexit. Well, how do you do that without having some kind of border and some kind of customs checks between the EU and the UK? And so they negotiate this deal with the EU on their way out, and now they're breaking the deal already. You know, And to me, it just shows you like Brexit doesn't get enough attention. It's not going well. Like the the UK economy is lagging behind the European economy. They're all they're tied in these bureaucratic knots. The Good Friday Accords uh, imperiled, or, or or at least you know facing this cloud of the uncertainty of of Northern Ireland. You have Sinn Fein, right? The uh, ascendant, the, the ascendant in Irish politics. So that's the Northern Ireland party that historically is supported. Um, uh, Irish nationalism. So I don't know. I mean, like it it bears watching. They're going to be tied up in legal processes with the EU over this, I'm sure. There's no good answer for Northern Ireland. And the question going forward is like, how much does Brexit continue to tie up the UK in knots? And does it kind of push Northern Ireland and Scotland further away from from England at the core of, of, of the UK there? Yeah. It's uh, not going great. It's not going great. And like, this not is what everybody great. predicted. And just because it's a good reminder, Tommy, we used to say it's like, just because the world didn't end like overnight, yeah. right? Like sometimes the, the Brexit supporters would be like, oh, all the doom and gloom. Well, it's like, point me to a benefit. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> what is so great? What, about what's this? going well? What's all the, good, all the yeah. lies about the NHS getting yeah. more money in this. And it's just nonsense. Uh, actually, I lied. One more UK question, Ben. And you know, what? I don't think we've talked about this. And it's really important that we do. Uh, Ashley on Instagram asks, what's going on with the Rwandan refugees in the UK? I don't understand the context. You want to start? You want me to start? So, I mean, the basic context, right, is that the UK reached this crazy deal where they would um, send uh, migrants crossing the English Channel trying to get into the UK. They would send them all the way to Rwanda. Like 4,000 miles away. Yeah, right. They, and they, they cut some deal with the Rwandans where they, they gave them basically a pile of money. Yeah, $158 million. Yeah, and, 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 and to kind of process the migrants there and kind of hold them there. And settle them, essentially. Yeah, hold them there. Yeah, and it's um, – so you could be an Afghan, right, who like made their way all the way to the UK border um, with a credible claim for political asylum and – and yet find yourself in Rwanda uh, a few which, days later. Which is one of the smallest and, and maybe the most densely populated countries in Africa. And competition for land and resources has fueled lots of conflicts in the past, including the 1994 genocide. Um, and it's very unlikely that all these folks the UK sends over to Rwanda will stay there, right? A lot of them will spill over in the, into the DRC. And I, this, it's a, this is a... Horrible idea. Yeah, it's horrible. Idea. I mean, and and so I mean, you know, the UN Refugee Agency criticized the plan. Human Rights Watch slammed this plan. The UK government is threatening life sentences in prison for people who drive boats across the English Channel with migrants. Apparently, Prince Charles was criticizing the plan. He called it appalling privately. And I guess you know this is similar. Apparently, Israel sent several thousand migrants to Rwanda and Uganda between 2014 and 2017. I didn't realize that. And there was an Australian policy in 2013 where they began sending asylum seekers to Papua New Guinea and this other tiny atoll because they were worried about smuggling. But like, 
sending people with no connection to Rwanda, no understanding of the language, just to get them out of your hair because it's a political yeah. problem for Boris Johnson. Like that is disgusting. Yeah. And Paul Kagame, right? The president of Rwanda, you know, he he's won some plaudits in the West for having like a, a, a you know, pretty well-functioning government and a somewhat developing economy. Um, things, things are orderly, but they're also very much moving in an autocratic direction in Rwanda. They've had uh, political opponents of Kagame's have turned up dead in other countries. Um, so it's not like human rights environment uh, in Rwanda is not all that could be either. No. Um, so it's just, it's just like, it's the most cynical possible way to, to look tough on, you know, not having a, an open border. There, there's another way, even if you're going to be anti-migrant, uh, anti-immigration, uh, which you shouldn't be, um, but like this, this is a pretty extreme manifestation of it, and uh, you know, pretty different than the treatment of Ukrainian refugees. Yeah, as Boris Johnson's out there, like Mister, you know, Ukrainian hmm. advocate. Wonder uh, what the difference is yeah. between two and, sets. an Afghan, right? Yeah, like, yeah. what about the Afghans that the UK fought a war there for? You know, for Amazing. a long time. Um, DJ Patties on Instagram said, <laughs> "Yes, can you please talk about the Russification of Eastern Ukraine?" Absolutely, happy to. I mean, the gist is basically the process of erasing Ukrainian identity and language and culture and forcing residents to accept Russian rule. Yeah, yeah. And what's what's interesting about this is that, like, Putin's pretext for moving into Luhansk and Donetsk in the Donbass region of eastern Ukraine back in 2014 was that there were these Russian-speaking, kind of Russian-oriented populations there Um who you know were separatist or wanted to be with Russia and didn't want to be under Ukrainian quote unquote Nazis. Um, there's a really interesting uh, article in the New Yorker by Ed Caesar about hmm. a Ukrainian refugee family. People should check it out. Uh, what's interesting about this family is it shows the generational split um, where the, the the older parents are from these you know from like uh, Kharkiv, for instance, um, which is one of the biggest. Uh, it's the second biggest city in Ukraine, and it's near the border with Russia. It's not in Do the Donbass, but it's it's right near the border. And the older generation was pro-Russian. Mm -hmm. They spoke Russian. They they were nostalgic in some ways for the Soviet days. Um, but the Russian invasion and, and Russification of Eastern Ukraine has turned them against Russia. Yep. You know, and yep. and so a lot of these people that were like on this border area of the Soviet Union who had some sympathy for Russia have been turned against it. And and what Putin is doing is he's clearing out these areas. Um, he's literally depopulating them, destroying the cities and towns as they were. And what I would look for in terms of russification is moving people in. In Mariupol, for instance, uh, after Russia occupied it, they, they literally were changing the names of the city yeah. to Russian. They were getting rid of Ukrainian street signs, just seeking to kind of erase any... Handing out Russian passports, yeah. introducing the ruble, distributing new textbooks for kids, yeah. like new bureaucratic offices, like marriage licenses. Yeah, yeah. I mean, it's like really like some evil bureaucratic shit. And seemingly planned, right? Yeah. Like they, they have a game plan to just turn the areas of Ukraine under their control into Russia, which is, again, why these peace talks might be very complicated because what, what do you do about that if you're Ukraine? Like, yeah. you know, Mariupol, it'd be like if, you know, uh, a foreign country conquered, you know, Los Angeles and changed the language and the history curriculum right. and then suddenly we're supposed to negotiate, yeah. you know. Canada just takes, yeah. like, Oregon from us or and, Washington. And, it, and suddenly you know, says like, you have to speak French, you know. Christopher Miller, friend of the pod, uh, had a great piece in this. And, you know, a lot of people have quoted the Ukrainian parliament's commissioner for human rights 
a, a couple months ago saying that 1.3 million Ukrainians, including 223,000 children, have been forcibly deported to Russia. So this uh, is that's just staggering. This is like genocidal yeah, numbers. This is like World War II level, like you know, repopulation, Stalinist yeah. stuff. Uh, so that was a dark one. Uh, this one mixes uh, uh, light and dark. Uh, Yorkie Dad, nineteen eighty four on Twitter. What is Tommy's AG recipe? Uh, blend into smoothie or just water? I'll give you that one. And also, along with everything else, what the actual fuck? And what do you think is possible? Do you think it's possible the United States could follow Latin America in a leftward reaction? In our case, to the Christian nationalist and MAGA era. All right, this is not a, a freebie ad. My AG recipe is my breakfast bin: half a banana, water, ice, protein powder, peanut butter. AG one, you blend it up. It's delicious. That's huh. a, that's a freebie for the AG one people. That's a freebie. That's pretty good. Yeah. Um, leftward reaction to the MAGA era, maybe, but like we have the electoral college and the Senate, and that's just going to make it harder. But like, what do you think? Yeah, it makes it harder. I mean, we got a bomb after Bush. I guess. Yeah, like what I'd say is that like the thing that we don't know yet is who might come out of nowhere here right i mean like not to get psa on you know but like i like there's something that's going to come next you know like like we, and i don't know when that's going to come tommy like is that uh, two years mm-hmm. six years whatever it is but like we've got now like like a an 80 year old uh democratic president you know trump is 70 whatever we know we got the maga right democratic party sorting itself out and I do think at some point, like a left wing populist backlash to everything. Um, if you look at other places, um, that can happen, right? Because mm-hmm. we're dealing with kind of the mix of Christian nationalism and late stage capitalism here. So, but it, it depends on who that person is. It, you know, um, Bernie took a whack at it. And the question is can someone else who's probably younger get traction? I don't know. Yeah, I don't but, know either. Hopeful. It, it, it's interesting to watch it happen in other countries. It's because it suggests that maybe that's something that can mobilize people. But th- I guess the other thing I'd say about those Latin American countries is that in like Chile, for instance, student movements kind of preceded yeah, that. Big right? ones. Yep. So like Boric himself, who's now president, started as like a student activist mobilizing hundreds of thousands of people in the streets, right? And was called a sellout by the far left because he started. Yeah, because like, anyone in the politics, right? Yeah, so, yeah. But the question here is like, will young people mobilize at a level that creates that generational change in leadership. I hope so, actually. There was like, a, that, that would be pretty good if it did happen. There's a great uh, breach profile in The New Yorker recently. Um, John Lee Anderson. Yeah, John was, Lee Anderson. It was awesome. Yeah, yeah, it was really good. People should check that out. I mean, again, if you can connect the dots, <laughs> you know, someone who you, you interact a bunch with Tom, uh, young people, Tommy, like... Love a good young person. I love a good... Like, my High five them. Guy. Hello, youths. <laughs> Hello, kids. youths. Um, but if someone can connect the dots between climate change... Uh, economic inequality and my weed in there. social liberalism and, and weed legalization, all these things Thank like you. that that's sitting there for somebody yes, like uh, I hope someone comes along and takes it. I do too. Ben, this is a really interesting big question from uh, JJ Johan on Instagram. What are the biggest ways international politics have changed since you were in the white house? Um, there's a lot of answers there's to this. I mean, massive war in Europe. That's like an obvious, yeah. like, obvious. but I, I think what one, one thought to ruminate on, I don't know that we understood the lingering impact of the global financial yeah, crisis. Yeah, like yeah. the fact that we're still dealing with it, places never recovered. Yeah. Economies never recovered. And politics went populist. Yeah. Know. And the rise of right-wing nationalism yeah. and populism. I think that's uh, notable. Um, I think that the Biden administration today is dealing with the way American social media companies broke 
local media institutions yeah. all around the world. Yeah, that's a great answer because the way people consume information has transformed international politics because it's transformed the domestic politics of every country, right? Um, I would throw in there, which ties into your financial crisis point, you know, even through the Obama years, there was something of a like a habitual deference to the United States to like, you know, what's the agenda at the G20 and, you know, what's what's the plan for the next big climate change conference? There was still a kind of a deference to the U.S. And I, I think that that had taken a huge hit after Iraq and the financial crisis, but it was still kind of there through the Obama years. My sense is that just collapsed under Trump. Russia and China used to at least pretend to be stakeholders in like a system that had America at its center. Mm -hmm. And now Russia and China not only don't pretend, they are openly attacking and hostile to any American-led order. So the kind of you know, because of the financial crisis, because of social media, because of a lot of things, the deference to American leadership and, and, and just the role that Russia and China play trying to, to upend it um, is much more acute than than even a few years ago at the end of the Obama presidency. Yeah, I mean, I've written down China is just way more assertive. Way more aggressive, way more assertive. They're certainly not like a helpful actor during most of our time, but on some things they, you know, here and there, like certain sanctions and this and that. Did you see that like Tony Blinken gave a speech about China a few weeks ago? And today the Chinese came out with like an 80-page rebuttal or something. Oh, my God. They was just full of shit talk. Like that kind of stuff didn't happen. Like, yeah, that's a that's a modern iteration. I think India becoming disconcertingly less democratic is yeah. a big trend. That's a big trend. Uh, I also was sort of thinking about this and remarking upon how many things have not changed. Like there's about to be an election in Israel and Bibi Netanyahu, my <laughs> yeah, company, yeah, to power. Yeah. Merkel just retired. Yeah. Boris Johnson's still a pain in our ass. Putin's still kicking around. We still haven't pivoted to Asia. We've been trying to pivot. So uh, it's so hard. It's like Zoolander. We're just not turning. I would say like I, I watch all these announcements of like the tens and tens of thousands of troops that will be stationed now in Europe uh, as part of this new NATO plan. And while that all makes sense, like that is not a pivot to Asia and the Chinese have to like that. And so people are wondering, like, why would the Chinese go along with this crazy war in Ukraine? Like, pretty good for them to have the American military point. kind of uh, focus on Europe. Yeah, there was a time when there was talk of NATO focusing more on China. And that's not going to happen. <laughs> You're yeah. Yeah, that that's, these days. The, whatever they say, that's not happening. Yeah. They're focused on, on one thing. This show is sponsored by BetterHelp. We all carry around different stressors, big and small. When we keep them bottled up, it can start to affect us negatively. Therapy is a safe space to get things off your chest and to figure out how to work through whatever's weighing you down. If you're thinking of starting therapy, give BetterHelp a try. It's entirely online. It's designed to be convenient, flexible, and suited to your schedule. Just fill out a brief questionnaire to get matched with a licensed therapist and switch therapists anytime for no additional charge. Listen, if you're listening to Pod Save the World, you need some therapy. If you're watching the events around the world that might freak you out, We've got this election coming down the pike. There's a lot of stuff that people uh, are stressed about, that are anxious about, stuff that makes you lose sleep, and therapy can help. Get it off your chest with BetterHelp. Visit betterhelp.com slash crookedworld. Go today to get 10% off your first month. That's betterhelp, H-E-L-P dot com slash crookedworld. Okay, we had some good China questions, so why don't we, I'll combine two. So Shannon on Instagram asks, do you think people are right to be afraid of the rise of China? And then Mandrick14 on Instagram says, why did China crack down on streamers and influencers? You want to you start with these? 
Well, yeah, I'll, I'll take uh, uh, on the fearing the rise of China. Like, I I don't inherently fear it, and like you know, the idea that the U.S. shouldn't call the sh- like we shouldn't. It was clearly dangerous for the U.S. to be a hegemon like we were because mm-hmm. we did shit like invade Iraq, right? We did crazy shit, um, and and I think the idea of having different countries emerge and play you know, large roles in, in, in geopolitics and in the global economy, that's that's all good, right? Um, what bothers me is just that the Chinese political system at home and abroad over the last, well, since Xi Jinping came to power um, in 2013 has just become much, much more aggressive. And so what concerns me is less China itself, right? Because like Trump would describe it almost as like a racialized problem. Oh, absolutely. Like China rising. It's their their system. I don't like their system. <laughs> so I, I, I like the kind of techno dystopian authoritarian con- total control of information, the capacity to use technologies for extreme forms of surveillance, the organization of big data with artificial intelligence to kind of control people. I don't like that if it's coming from like a big corporation and I don't like if it's coming from like a big communist party either. And especially yeah. when it manifests in like the treatment of the Uyghurs and you know the genocide. Yeah. Although I mean we should be honest like I think the right wing in the United States they are particularly focused on China's um uh views towards religion. Yeah. You know? I mean yeah, that's a big yeah. piece of it. That's a big piece of it, but it, and I think what you've seen increasingly too is that like the rise of China it can be very different things. It could be the positive view could be like a China that is investing in other countries, helping to build infrastructure, that other countries are lifting people out of poverty, um, following playbooks uh, that they develop, you know, not that dissimilar from what China did, Um, that China is contributing constructively to solving problems like climate change. Um, the, The problem is that when you look at how China is throwing its weight around in some countries now, it's it's putting those countries into debt traps. It's building coal plants. Yeah. It's, you know, helping corrupt autocratic governments stay in power. And, and, and so it's nothing inherent about China as a country, but the, this version of the Chinese Communist Party seems to be moving in the direction of the, the less <laughs> the less positive um, way that China could rise. Yeah. What about the streamers crackdown? What'd you make of that? I mean, I think we have a global war over culture and speech, right? Yeah. And um, the Chinese want to control as it's interesting that as culture has emerged, you know, as the middle class emerges, consumers emerge and pop culture explodes inside of a country. And so China has this its own Internet and has its own influencers and has its own streaming content and and Tencent and all these platforms. Um, And the Chinese Communist Party wants to make sure that it controls that and that 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 pe- people get too powerful, they get kind of whack a mole down by the Chinese Communist Party, and and it's it's going to be a fascinating test case to see if if they can continue to do that. I, I mean, I think inevitably they're going to have problems. Uh, you know, like people, I don't know. I, 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 I maybe it's the inherent like American in me, but like I have to think at a certain point people get a little tired of like the the party line on everything. I mean, you certainly saw it during some of these uh, COVID crackdowns. That's right. You know what I mean? I mean, people were in the streets screaming at cops, like shit that will get you thrown away for life in China. So at some point, you're right. I mean, there's desperation. I mean, I think this is probably a related question and answer, Ben, which is uh, Aid Stormo on Instagram says, what's up with all the defense spending Dems keep adding? Is it Ukraine or just question mark, question mark, question mark? I'd say Ukraine. 
China, uh, a defense industry structure that makes it impossible to kill stupid programs and projects because they spread out the jobs and production of these things all over the country in districts and you get all this NIMBY stuff from elected officials. Yeah, and I think I'd add to that just the Democratic Party's like inherent defensiveness. Like there's so much waste in the defense budget. It's like hundreds totally. of billions of dollars too high. One thing we talked about in the past, like the modernization of the nuclear weapons stockpile that's going to cost <laughs> yeah. a trillion dollars, right? Um, and what happens is like they send up the budget to Congress and the Biden administration is already increasing that budget. And then Congress adds even more money. Um, and, and, and to really reverse the trend, it's not just like trimming fat. It's not just like, oh, let's kill this one bloated weapon system. It's saying like, no, we're going to like core principles here. Like we can find hundreds of billions of dollars in cuts in this budget and have basically no impact on the capacity of the military to keep this country safe because it is so inflated, right? I mean, it's next in like the next 10 countries combined uh, spent on defense. Yeah, it's staggering amount of money. Alan on Instagram writes, what should we be hoping for in the Israeli elections? Um, sort of a couple parts. One, no BB Netanyahu. Yep. That's, Top that, that's priority one, list. two, three, four, five. Yeah. And then I think like number six would just maybe a, some certainty in the outcome. These poor folks have gone through like how many, like half a dozen kind of no outcome elections? Yeah. I well, mean, actually, it was more like three, I think. And then they I think they've had four. five. I think they've had, this will be five elections. Yeah, they've in just like had a hard time years, forming governments you know? and, and, and keeping I, them. I, you know, I think you want the least ultra right wing nationalist government you can get, um, whether that's Lapid or whoever that is. You want like a bit of a revitalized and consolidated Israeli left so that you have like not Bibi, not some other crazy right-wing nationalist government, and you have some stable center that can, I don't know, <laughs> at least not do crazy shit. I mean, and Peter Beinar and I talked about this uh, on last week's episode. I mean, you have Biden going to visit Israel at a time when there will be no government. It'll be a caretaker prime minister. And it's so complicated because like, I don't know, maybe maybe Obama got the pushback he did in the criticism in Israel that he did in a larger part due to racism than I yeah. know more yeah. than just liberalism. But like you and I probably want Biden to go to Israel and push them on an investigation of the murder of Shireen Abu Akleh, the uh, Al Jazeera journalist who was killed in May. We probably want him to push them on settlement construction um, in general, sort of like pushing for talks with the PA. But there's always a question of, okay, okay will that create a backlash and will everyone just want the leadership to stick it to Biden as part of their campaign? Yeah. I mean, it's not unlike dealing with the Republican Party in this country, though. Like the the idea that if you stand up for what you believe in, we might be even crazier always makes people uncomfortable. That's a fair point. That's a fair rejoinder. And I get, but that's how you kind of couch it in principle. Like I, I, I get not pushing. Like, look, we're, there's not like no Palestinian statehood on the horizon. Like talks with the PAs not aren't going to go anywhere, but like the U.S. can take an, a, a position on the killing of a journalist, right? Um, the U.S. can take a, a position, an American too, yeah, yeah. A, an American journalist. The U.S. can take a position on settler violence, right? I mean, mm -hmm. things that you would say in any country, right? And if if that is, you know, like if we can't do that because we're we seem constantly worried about the the backlash from everybody, and yet trends are moving in the wrong direction anyway. And not just in Israel, like in a lot of, in this yeah. country too. No, you're right. You know? you're right. Uh, ben, 
This is a good question. Lord S on Twitter asks, can you explain the war in Yemen when and how it started in the US position? Gracias. You wanna you wanna do this one? We you sort of um spun the gamut of living through this. Yeah. Being in government and then outside of government. Yeah, so uh I so basically what happened is inside Yemen had this political crisis post Arab Spring, like a lot of places, where their kind of corrupt aging autocrat was ousted. There's a period of some political instability. Out of that period of political instability in kind of 2014, 15. What's that the, guy's name again, the president? Hadi. Um, well, oh, oh Salah, Salah, yeah. Was, yeah, uh, yeah. When ben and I uh, shared an office together in the basement of the West Wing. John Brennan, who then the Homeland Security Advisor, later the CIA director, would always talk to President Salah. And it was funny to hear John's readouts because like Salah would be drunk half the time and John would scream at him in Arabic, things like the eyes of the world are yeah, upon yeah, you. Yeah, it was, it, it, it was just not like a very... Um, wasn't an ideal political situation, <laughs> it was right? Tough. And, and and so, what happened is the Houthi movement, which is kind of a, a distinct faction, religious fact sect uh, inside of Yemen, that is somewhat aligned with Iran. Um, they started to gain a lot of traction inside of Yemen, um, and they were kind of advancing their position and moving into the capital. Um, and the Saudis were freaking out about this, you know. Um, and this is right at the time that King Abdullah dies and Mohammed bin Salman ascends to this position as, at the time, deputy crown prince, but really the power behind the throne because his father, uh, the king, is, let's just say, um, he makes Joe Biden look like a, a pretty virile young man, <laughs> you know. Um, and, um, and so the MBS, who is also defense minister, decides that they're going to draw a line and stand up to Iranian interference and blah, blah, blah. Now, to be clear, the Houthis are a distinct movement inside of Yemen. They live there. They're not like Iranians who came no. into Yemen, right? No. Um, and, and we always thought at the time that they were overstating the degree to which the Iranians were kind of calling the shots. Like, Yeah. The, there were like yeah. weapon shipments there that were, were interdicted yeah. things, yeah. right? Like there, there was some support, but it's like there was a bit of a chicken or the egg debate sometimes. It's like, yes. Well, they called out the Houthis for being supported by Iran. The more Iran seemed to want to support them. Well, and, and then what happened is, so the, the Saudis decide they're going to draw the line and they're going to... They're going to go on offense and they're going to go to war, literally, against the Houthis. They're going to invade Yemen to attack the Houthis and push them back. And this was Mohammed bin Salman. People should remember, like, this was MBS's kind of first big play. Mm -hmm. He was the defense minister. This was his thing. And we, we in the Obama administration, like, were not supportive of this. Like, we had been trying to encourage them to open up a diplomatic channel with the Iranians, to reduce tensions, have a political process inside of Yemen. Obama made a mistake, uh, in, in my view, and I think, you know, pretty largely held view since in, we weren't like gung-ho behind this thing, but we did agree to provide pretty fundamental support in terms of the Saudi military kind of depends on the American military for logistics and, you know, how are you refueling planes right. and how are you targeting things? Um, and very quickly, it went terribly wrong in the sense that the Saudi campaign was kind of indiscriminate. There were civilian casualties. They weren't really like achieving any objectives and fighting the Houthis back. It was just kind of adding to the violence in Yemen. And the Obama administration started to impose restrictions on certain weapons systems that could be delivered. And we were trying to push this into a political process. Um, but then Trump gets elected. And then, you know, all constraints are off. 
it escalates even more. The Saudis and the Emiratis are in the lead. Point being is it created a humanitarian catastrophe in which millions of people are put at risk of malnourishment and famine. Hundreds of thousands of people have been killed in this fighting. The Houthis have not been dislodged in any way, shape, or form. So the strategic objective of dislodging the Houthis has failed. The other strategic objective of like pushing back Iranian influence has failed. It's caused a humanitarian catastrophe. It's not gone well. No, it's a it's a moral strategic disaster. Yeah. And it, it's been part of this like proxy war with Iran all across the region too, which has yeah. not gone well. Starting with everyone putting their hands on the orb. Oh, that, yeah. I, that was middle, I should, to be fair. Um, here's a good question. Shash Boa on Instagram says, why isn't anyone paying attention to what's happening in Sri Lanka? Um, that is a good question. It is, pre- it is pretty dire. I mean, we're recording this on June 30th. Um, their economy is on the verge of total collapse. People are spending literally spending days in line trying to get kerosene or cooking gas, can't always get it. Uh, they can't get basic food. There's been political violence. There's been massive protests. The government, uh, I think yesterday or the day before, said that for the next two weeks that um, they're going to shut down schools and they're only going to give fuel supplies to services like essential ones, like hospitals, trains, buses, et cetera. So this is really like the culmination of massive economic mismanagement, the pandemic, and then a bunch of terrorist attacks that just destroy the tourism industry. But I mean, it's a pretty staggering example of a country that had a vibrant middle class who are all now just being like thrown into poverty incredibly quickly. And the political instability has not gone anywhere. You have this ruling family that is just dug in, you know, sort of papering over concessions. But um, I don't know where this goes. I mean, basically they're being propped up by aid from India and some other donors. Yeah, and on the question, I mean, I think that the 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 harsh and somewhat uncomfortable reality is like to some extent geography, right? Yeah. In that if this was happening in, you know, along Europe's borders or right in the middle of, you know, East Asia or you know, was in the Middle East, you know, like yeah. we'd be all over this, right? Be paying a lot of attention to it. I mean, Obama used to make this point a lot about um, even the Middle East relative to Africa, because Obama obviously cared a lot about Africa. Like, there was a war in the Congo that killed, you know, millions of people that didn't register. And that's not right. Um, I, I think that Sri Lanka is so far away. And it's not kind of in the middle of like a region, you know, because it's kind of off in South Asia um, that I think people don't like incorporate it into how they think about, you know, the, the parts of the world they follow. And, yeah. and, and I think that's wrong, by the way, because I think that Sri Lanka is, is, you know, has an incredibly vibrant, talented population. But I, you know, th- this has been the case for a while. Like this was the case in 2009 when you and I were in the White House mm-hmm. and you had just a brutal, Tamils. brutal massacre of the Tamils uh, to end that civil war. And that didn't really register much internationally. So hopefully like, yeah, I think there's a a bit of a default to, to India on some of these things too, um, which again, reinforces an idea of kind of spheres of influence, which isn't great, but hopefully people can can keep keep an eye on this. You yeah. know, it, 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 it leads to a bigger, broader question of like how and when and why wars get covered. I mean, I think there is, yeah. there's a clear bias in terms of geography and race, yeah. frankly. Yeah. You yeah. know, and like the amount of mind share- And, and economic interests. And right? economic yeah. interests and sort of spheres of influence. Yeah. But like, you know, the amount of coverage of the Middle East peace process is disproportionate to all these other issues that are out there in the world that could flare up. Um, I also remember hearing a lot of people at the beginning of sort of the Ukraine conflict being like, 
why are people reporting on this so much and not reporting on the civil war in Ethiopia? You know, like the media is terrible. They're hopeless. And there's a piece of it that is just kind of logistics. You know what I mean? Like the Ukrainian government was welcoming in journalists, was putting them up, was taking them to the front lines and betting them with their military. In Ethiopia, like you couldn't get into the country. You couldn't get into Eritrea. It was incredibly dangerous to go to the places where the fighting was. So like that kind of, those sort of like very simple kind of common sense things often sometimes play into the coverage. Um, I'm not saying there isn't bias, you know, in terms of like what a bureau chief in the U.S. is interested in. Like clearly like the Ukraine story is viewed as like the really hot story. And I don't know that the Ethiopia story ever was, you know, like some really amazing reporters were there and like doing brave, like Nima Obagir was like doing incredible journalism to get there. But, um, you know, it's complicated. Yeah, I mean, some of it, some of it's legit and some of it's very uncomfortably Western-centric uh, and racialized. The, the legit piece is like if you, in Ukraine, this could become like World War Three For sure. Like, so unlike- And there's nukes. If there was, yeah, exactly. If there was a war anywhere else, in, in most other places in the world at least, you actually wouldn't have the potential, you know, NATO and Russia could get in a conflict over Ukraine that could cause a nuclear war. That's that's big That's big news. And, and one was threatened. And, yeah, and it was threatened. So like there, there is some very real reasons for Ukraine to get the attention as. I think, but then there are other things like, even like a humanitarian catastrophe like Syria, let's face it, it was like a bigger story because it also fed a refugee crisis into the West, you know, mm-hmm. then like, it, then again, to use the example of, of the DRC of, of, of Congo, millions of people were killed there. Like more people were killed there than in Syria. And there were masses of refugees. Um, and, but they didn't come, or very few of them came all the way into the West. Yeah, you know? it worked and, a lot of time, yeah. Yeah, so it just, uh, like there, we we have to, you know, like that. that's part of the structural wiring of, the media in, in, in the U.S. and Europe. That's right. Guys, it's been a rough year. It's going to get rougher, and you deserve a little treat for not going insane yet. You could head to the local tiki bar and tell the bartender, do your worst. But we have a better idea for you, which is pick out something from the Crooked store. The store is stocked with tons of new merch. It's perfect for the spring. And classics like the friend of the pod tees that you'll be wearing long after the next administration or the next fascist dictatorship, depending on how things go. Pick up a new tee for the warm weather ahead, a mug that'll remind you to stay involved this election year, or a hat celebrating your favorite pod. Go to crooked.com store to shop. Stubaj on Instagram says, young world though, wanting to understand the world politics better. Where did you start? Uh, well, this pod will help. <laughs> yeah. I mean, <laughs> there are some like back episodes that are very evergreen. Like Mark Lippert, former U.S. ambassador to North Korea. Wow, you're going to the catalog. Right? Way deep in the, well, like if you want like primers on like stuff like that or like, you know, um, uh, who's that amazing uh, assistant secretary ambassador, Johnny Carson? Yeah, yeah. Like, I did one with him about his career. Like, I don't know. You could... There's some old stuff that, like, won't feel old um, that will be helpful. I would also just say, like, pick a couple of news outlets, find some free ones, and, and read them. Like, Al Jazeera English, the BBC, the New York Times International section. Like, you're going to learn a lot from those things. Yeah, I guess for me personally, like, you know, I was obviously much younger, but, like, the BBC was 
was an interesting starting place because they were so global in their so coverage. Global. I used to love- I use know, it for this show all the time. Yeah, li- but I'd listen to the BBC radio and there's some guy in Zimbabwe. Their you know, podcasts are great too. Their podcasts are really good. So check out the BBC is like- BBC World Service. Yeah, BBC World yeah. Service is a great portal. I think also like to me, um, finding like, you, you know, like a good New Yorker piece, you know, like you mentioned John Lee Anderson. Mm-hmm. Like if you read like a John Lee Anderson piece in the New Yorker, like say the one we we're talking about, Boric in Chile, you won't just get like a profile of that guy. You'll get kind of like a flavor of the left in Latin America, yeah, the history sure. of Latin America. And, and so to me, like the, that kind of feature length journalism and, you know, pick your pick your flavor. What was the Joan Didion book you gave me that where she's in like Argentina? S- uh, well, there's Salvador. Salvador. Uh, the, the book she had, Salvador. Um, she had a couple others too. Like, but like I, to me, like re- to use a word like reportage, but like, you know, that like, <laughs> like, like I, I always love that. I, I have to say, even though it's like the most neolib um, plug I could make. Uh-huh. You're voting for Macron? <laughs> no, The Economist, like uh, okay. you pick up The Economist. Okay. It's like the BBC in that they have a section on every part of the world. That's true. Now, it has a point of view, and you have to know what its point of view is. Its point of view is open markets, open democracy, yeah. Global, yeah. globalization, some of which is very good, some of which has not had a good run the last 30 years. But I, I, I do think <laughs> it, and it, it's probably expensive, but like it does, just things that give you that, that full lay of the land uh, are good. Yeah, um, if you're young enough to be at school, just steal it from the library. No, yeah. one, no one will yeah. care. No one will yeah. notice. They're not yeah. reading the fucking Economist. Yeah, I mean, but, you know, the, the, there are bits and pieces there, but like you know, the shop around. There's a lot of uh, there's a lot of content out there. Uh, ben Leanne on Twitter wants to know what are your simplest pleasures and biggest pet peeves? Not the obvious, big, infuriating, or amazing stuff. Just normal, everyday things. My simplest p- pleasures and biggest pet peeves. I mean, my my simplest pleasure living here in Los Angeles is going running on the actual beach. That's cool. Because I live yeah. in Venice, so like I run down and I run on the, like I wreck my shoes and I just kind of run on the on the sand by the water. This shows how much you've grown. By the way, a decade ago you would have just said cigarette. That was <laughs> through my the through the White House years. That was my only simple pleasure. <laughs> yeah, it's only only it's also the only time I was physically outside of a building. <laughs> like was like literally ripping the, butts yeah, from Cody yeah, Keenan. The, the in only the... time. Uh, I could get outside. Um, I, I, you know, like a, like, so the running, uh, like a stiff, pretty stiff drink yeah, um, at around six o'clock when you really need it um, continues to be simple pleasure. It's funny when you get older, I like the extent to which like reading a book becomes simple pleasure. Yeah, you know? I know. I know. Uh, I, I nap like twice a year because I just suck at it. But when you get one in, that's, Ooh, that's sweet. A nap is is kind of a delight. Related one. My my dog in the morning is extra cuddly and cute, and I'm really I'm pretty into her. I I, I watch it a lot of football. I like edibles. I like a good glass of wine, not expensive yeah. glass. I think if you listen to this show, one. you know we we kind of we're enthusiasts of edibles. Yeah. Um, I uh, cooking. Um, actually, I like cooking too. I really like cooking. Like it, like really you know, grown to enjoy it. Yeah, it's you cathartic. Just, you got an hour. You get something done, then you eat it. Um, what are your pet peeves? Getting seated really close to people at restaurants. Oh, I hate that. Trust me. Even like crazy. pre-COVID when you can't hear and they're listening, you could you think that they uh, can hear your conversation. You're, yeah, like inevitably you're next to a bad date or something. Yeah. Um, that's a good one. Yeah. That's, this is not about anyone uh, on this show or at this company, but yeah. I, have, I have a podcast that I listen to all the time that I really like. And one of the hosts, it's an, it is an epidemic in podcasting of answering the question you just asked before the person can. Where you like answer for them? Oh, you ask a question and you answer it. Mm-hmm. Yeah, 
Yeah, that's really annoying. That's the thing. Uh, also, just in the podcast world, um, the horrendous like searchability of shows. Because I'm always looking for like great interviews on things we're going to talk about that week. And unless you have like a really specific search term, you can never find what you want. Ever. Yeah. Apple. Why is it that so hard? To, I've noticed that too. I don't know, man. Like it never just gives you something you want. Um, help me out. Yeah. It's always crap. What other pet peeves? I, I'll, I'll tell you. Um, Basically, the the way in which money is ruining college sports. Like, oh, I, yeah. I, I say say because it was announced today that like UCLA and USC want to join the Big Ten. Oh, which uh, they for, are what? Yeah, for world those. I apologize for this for a moment, but like, this is basically California colleges joining a Midwestern league because there's more money in it for them. Well, in the NIL deals, I mean, like the NIL deal means name, image, and likeness. It means that if you're a college kid, you can sign a deal with the someone to pay you to yeah. like endorse their thing. But um I support that. I think these kids should get paid. But you're I'm hearing about like quarterbacks getting ten million dollar NIL deals to yeah. go to like Florida State or something. Yeah, yeah. That's just a shitload of money. Yeah. It's it's so that's that I don't know why that popped in my head. Um I don't know. Like pet peeves. What about people who reply? So reply like, alls, reply unnecessary reply alls. That's brutal. That's a big one. Yeah, unnecessary reply alls is a big one. Uh, from uh, from globally renowned authors. Uh, no, I was going to say like when you tweet something, like you read about like Donald Trump, um, literally trying to storm the Capitol himself on January sixth, and you say like this is unbelievable, and someone replies like, "Do you really not believe this? Are you really yeah. surprised? Like, <laughs> yeah, yeah. Do you just, are you just the guy that logs on to fucking tell everyone they shouldn't be surprised by stuff? Because I hate you. Yeah. I, yeah, but pet peeve in general is like the the extreme negativity of people towards other individual human beings when it's not necessary. Cynicism yeah. Yeah. as wisdom yeah. drives me Cynicism nuts. Cynicism as wisdom, yeah. Um, Jerry wants to know on Twitter. Jerry seems like a positive guy. Politics excluded. What are your What is your favorite European country visited for the scenery, culture, and food? There are no wrong answers. I told you it was positive. Mm. What about so? What are you? I mean, I'm I'm like a real France homer at yeah. the moment, just because I just had such a good time there. Uh, I was thinking about, um, we did a pod tour in Stockholm in Sweden. It's a really cool, really cool city. And then I was also thinking about Ben. Um, in 2009, I think, or 2010, I got sent to uh, Lake Geneva Ooh. for the P5 plus one. The, uh, the, oh, yeah, I remember that. The yeah. Iran talks, yeah, yeah. The, the allies with the Iranians. And it was at this villa in Lake Geneva looking over this like this stunning stunning home that I'm sure the CIA had wired to the fucking gills um looking down on this lake you know like the Lake Geneva which is one of the most beautiful places I've ever seen in my life yeah that that that's pretty legit I so yeah I'm a you know I lived in France I'm I'm a bit of a France homer too um I, I guess like and I'd say for food um, and I know this is dicey, but I, I do t- lean Fran- French on the food. Um, oui. There's great things about Italy, Italian food, obviously, but like I lean in the French direction. I think in terms of scenery, like I love a good, very distinct city. And I'll, I'll set Paris yes. aside because you're already in France. Barcelona, Amsterdam, like those are love. places that are not like love, anywhere Amsterdam's else. Amsterdam's awesome. Amsterdam is fucking awesome. No, right? not at Barcelona, but like Amsterdam's just crazy. You're yeah. Like, well, I'm on a canal again. How yeah. That this is great. I'm rounding a corner. Whoa, look at that. You know, like there's a the beautiful canal. Um, I also like culturally, um, I always like the vibe in Berlin. Um, mm-hmm. Okay. 
you know, like there's so felt like there's just always a lot going on there. I went there by um, myself once. I ended up walking around. Like I remember looking at my phone. I was like nine miles, and it was just some real dark tourism. Well, it, it doesn't. It doesn't have the beauty, right? Like that's why like, Checkpoint like, Charlie. It okay. Have, yeah, it doesn't have like the natural beauty of like an Amsterdam or Barcelona park because it was destroyed for a lot of reasons. Um, I will say that I, um, in Dark Horse. Uh, Tallinn, uh, the Estonian capital, um, cool little city. But I, I need to spend more time. If there's a place I want to spend more time in Europe, it's in the Balkans. I, I haven't really I've done zero time crushed here. like Croatia and Slovenia. I, I want to go there. So give us a shout. Uh, Balkan world does. I remember I mentioned um, that I did a study abroad program in Italy. And there, I remember we went everywhere. There was this one town called, to your point about like kind of quaint or like distinct towns. There was a town called Assisi. Um, it was over the top of a Not hell. Not the dictator. No, St. Francis of okay. Assisi. Oh, okay. um, and <laughs> it was like a monk or a monastery at the top of this beautiful hill oh, in yeah, Tuscany. Yeah, yeah. And it was sort of this like part of the Renaissance where, you know, there's sort of like the early, early period where they don't know what the hell they're doing. And then there's the later period where you go to the Vatican and it's just like, it doesn't say uh, religion to me. It's just like power and like yeah, yeah, gaudy yeah. Rub your and money face and, yeah. you know, massive structures. And it was sort of this middle period of, renaissance painting where it was i don't know it just felt very uh sincerely held yeah i mean it's europe so like my honeymoon was prague and vienna and there's like a prague vienna budapest prague's incredible thing that's those cool are, too those are crazy. yeah this is, fuck there's so many places i like them all i like them all too i like europe. i like europe let's face it yeah yeah it's awesome um books what books are you reading any recs so I just read uh, like a massive book, um, which is tied to like a project I'm working on, which um, I'll, I'll plug when I'm done plugging my my last book. Uh, but, but I just read a book called These Truths by Jill Lepore. Okay. Oh, um, yeah. It's a single volume history of the United States. It's long. But if you read her stuff in The New Yorker, it, it flows actually shockingly well for a very long book. Um, so I just read that. Um, I just read a... Um, yeah, you know, I've been making my way through Graham Greene as my escapist fiction, hmm. right? Um, so The Power and the Glory, The Comedian's uh, Heart of the Matter. But it's like, you know, it's like a – there's the Le Carre flavor of yeah. like espionage and grizzled people, you know, beaten down in exotic circumstances. Like yep. Graham, Graham Greene has that in spades as well. Yeah, what, 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 what about you? Um, you know, I just – I'm, I'm reading Lucari's now. Oh, I mentioned, I think I mentioned that uh, white nationalism book earlier. People ask what, what I mentioned a um, AI book once on the pod. It's called Life 3.0. It's pretty interesting. I'm sort of like, I put it down to, to read something ostensibly less intense on vacation. And then yeah. I failed. Yeah. But I'm kind of excited to like dig into some of these Lucari ones from now. I need, yeah, and I, I'll, I'll need some newer fiction. I need a good nonfiction. Point. Yeah. Um, Ben, Julia wants to know if you could have an Emily in Paris spinoff, i.e. Ben in X, where are you going? I guess what this means is um, you uh, are living in a city. You don't really know what's going on. You barely speak the language. You're having a bunch of trysts uh, and you work in social media. Um, So I'm probably going to like completely miss the mark on like the but like, uh, and I'm not just saying like, there's this place called Luang Prabang in Laos, mm. right? Uh, where it's it, it, it's I cannot describe to you this place. It's like it's up the Mekong River. It's the ancient Buddhist capital of Laos. It's full of Whoa. these like old Buddhist temples and French kind of colonial buildings, surrounded by like water waterfalls and everything. 
And then if you go up the river, there are like these little backpackery type hotels. And I was always kind of like, if my life completely obliterated. <laughs> you got to get off the grid. And I had to get off the grid. I would open up like a backpacker kind of hotel on the river, you know, and be that kind of half sober, mm-hmm. like, uh, like proprietor, you know what I mean? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Who's like, like a... hangs out at his own place all day, like hangs out at like the, the wood tabled uh, place on the river like drinking like beer Lao out of uh-huh. bottles all day. Do you write like, for a local paper? Yeah, you know, you write like you write like um, mystery fiction on like you write for like the local English language paper, and you like hang out with the backpackers and see what drugs they brought up the river. Yep. You know, and you see George Smiley once every five so, years. Exactly, like it's kind of like that. You're like a, a minor character in the Lacare. Now, I like it. that's not like the Emily. The Emily in Paris vibe, I think, is more like it's got to be more like uh, upscale, right? Yeah, so, and you just you know, there's no actual conflict in your life besides like, should I date like the the hot chef or the other guy? You know, I so. then I would just go to like to, to be in the spirit of that. I'd go to like Florence. You know, that'd like, be it's great. Uh, yeah, like this, let's just take it to Florence. The cities I wrote down just to try to be different because we had a Europe question earlier where, well, this one is Istanbul, yeah. somewhere in Chile, or Bangkok. Yeah. Those would be some Bangkok good off the grid. Bangkok is a good one. Southeast Asia in general is, is, is my off, my number one option for like, if I could just disappear into a region, it'd be Southeast Asia. Yeah. yeah. Uh, I should have asked this one earlier because I try to progress from serious to less serious, but this is a good question. Baby Moon Man wants to know from Instagram, progress on international climate talks goals, question mark. Well, baby mm. moon man, um, <laughs> I, uh, I, I think that like, so first of all, we have some problems on the horizon here because Glasgow didn't go all that well, uh-huh. right? Yeah. And Joe Manchin spiked hundreds of billions of dollars in climate spending and the yeah, Supreme Court just gutted our regulations. So bad too. we're kind of fucked. And then the upcoming cop is in uh, Egypt. What? Yeah. Uh, which is not next year's uh, or this year's cop is in Egypt, which I don't. See is an ideal venue. I think the Emiratis are, are on on deck. Maybe like, what was this FIFA? Yeah, like everything is kind of fucked right now. Um, I think that like the the obviously you need to phase out coal. <laughs> you know, like um, you need to be in addition to methane and stopping the construction of new coal plants. And but like this issue about mobilizing climate finance um, to deal with like mitigating the effects of climate as well as the transition. I don't like it. I don't like. I, well, I don't like it when like corporations pledge to do things that they don't back up with concrete data, or people just pronounce that there's trillions of dollars in climate finance. But the big but, if governments are not going to be able to do this, you know, um, a lot of the action around these summits is going to have to be, unfortunately, like in the private sector, in the activism yeah. sector, like because I'm not that hopeful that that world governments are going to get like an epiphany on coal and and all these other things in the next year or two yeah we're gonna bank on climate tech a little bit too much exactly yeah i agree yeah uh well i think that's all we got i mean i hope everyone had a great july 4th uh sorry again to the prince of wales for not being able to accept the literal suitcases of cash from your friends in cutter but you know you'll find a new benefactor what's your favorite kind of like um holiday weekendy holiday so not like christmas or you know thanksgiving but like you know in the kind of i love july 4th you're july 4th guy Love it because I love fireworks. I love the beach, and I love that it's early summer. Yeah, and I've always, you always kind of associated with summer. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. It's just the best. It's you're the not best. a pre- you're not a Presidents' Day kind of guy. No, I don't know what else we got? Halloween. I don't give a shit. Uh, These are like minor holidays at this yeah. point. Thanksgiving's yeah. fun. I don't know. I like Thanksgiving. That's a good. Yeah, one. Fourth of July is, is up there. Thanksgiving's great because you can sort of binge eat, and there's no 
concerned that no anyone judgment. will see you in anything but a sweater for a very long time. That's true. Uh, all right. Talk to you guys yeah, next have week. Have your athletic greens. <laughs> <laughs>